The Great Work Radio Program. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Liliana Leopardi joins us for an update on the Art and Alchemy exhibition at the Uffizi, which ended last month in Florence. Liliana goes over the themes touched upon in the Italian language only exhibition catalog and reveals the inner workings of Medici alchemical experimentation leading up to the Age of Enlightenment. Also discussed is the relation of alchemy and religion to human sacrifice, as well as the fascinating history of the Wunderkammer or Cabinet of Curiosities. Well, it's very clear that in, to a certain extent the exhibition wants to show the sort of movement from alchemy towards science. How from the 15th and 16th century ducal interests in alchemical experiments, whether those were to actually find the Philosopher's Stones or the Elixir of Life, to eventually move by the time that we get to the times of the Enlightenment to actually chemical and you know scientific experiments to a certain extent. So we have a movement, you know, throughout the you know the the, the catalog and and obviously the exhibition try to give you the sense of how we begin with laboratories that are experimenting with materials that today or that have a goal in mind that today we would consider sort of esoteric and odd, but at that time was not considered such, and that eventually that evolved in the uh, uh, Wunderkammer, in the, the Room of Wonders, into the Collection of Wonders. Because it's very clear that the exhibition doesn't want to just focus on alchemy alone, but actually wants to focus on what they, uh, uh, I guess, would term something... Um, I'm trying to think. I guess they want to also look at the mark. The cabinet of curiosities. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for reminding me of the English label of it. Yeah. So they move basically from the practice of alchemy to the laboratory of the cabinet of, of curiosities. And they give a history, of course, of alchemy beginning with Cosimo I, because we do know that the uh, Grand Duke of Florence at the beginning of the 16th century was interested in alchemical uh, um, ideas. We do have a book of, re of recipes that was actually penned directly by him, whether he was copying different sources, but it's a collection that he wrote by his own hand. But it's his son, Francesco I, who's really, you know, the, the, the Medici who's most interested in alchemy and who pursues it in a systematical way. He has a little studiolo built, a little study room, and a true laboratory. There's different, uh, actually, rooms of, of the laboratory that occupy the spaces at the Uffizi. To what extent was science itself uh, illegal or frowned upon? You know, because it's not, uh, first of all, it's, you know, it depends on what we mean by science, because in the end right now for Francesco, alchemy and um, occult magic is a science. Now, as long as he is not calling upon demonic forces, the church has no problems really with his alchemical experiments. Now, of course, this does not mean that they've 
that they don't have to be careful. They do. But there is a fine line between, as we've discussed, I think, in a past interview, there's a fine line between black magic and white magic. And that line is whether or not there is the intervention of demons. And alchemy very clearly tries to move away from any idea of uh, demonic forces. On the other hand, in alchemy, they do uh, use a lot of allegorical uh, uh, and metaphors, strategies to uh, discuss the elements and what they might do. To give you a sense, for example, distillation, the, the practice itself of distillation, whether you're distilling a liquid of, you know, whether it's alcohol or another liquid, um, is interpreted as a metaphor of intelligence. And that therefore, during the distillation process, you have a process that is similar to that of synthesis that intelligence, uh, you know, can operate. So they do anthropomorphize this practices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the beakers themselves become kind of symbols of of some sort of new magic or something. The beakers themselves, in fact, are conceptualized as if they were brains, you know, as if they were the human mind. So it's very interesting because in that way, they are certainly moving away from any sense that there are demonic or occult forces at play. Um, On the other, of course, they are trying to achieve you know, an elixir that would allow them to not only uh, achieve long life, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, they conceptualize it as a universal uh, medicine that would allow to not only purify metals, but also purify human beings. And when they when they talk about their purification of the of human beings, they're actually talking about the purification of the mind as well as the purification of the body. Of course, the purification of the body meant the purification of illnesses. The purification of the mind becomes a spiritual process. So it's interesting because in that way, alchemy can actually be interpreted both as a physical and as a spiritual process. Did you happen to watch the video, uh, the Tower of Athenor that I did? Uh, because what they did was um, they were burning bodies in it as a, a purification ritual. Yes. Uh, and so, but that begs the question, I mean, were they deriving the elixir of life from human souls? You know, it's a good question. I don't know that, that it actually uh, is clear, you know. I mean, they're obviously using um, uh, chemical properties, um, but it's quite unclear exactly how they meant to achieve it. On the one hand, you know, like from the recipes that the even the, that are discussed, for example, in the exhibitions, it's clear that we have some sort of elixir that uses actually very simple uh, um, remedies like honey or alcohol, you know, that is ingested according to the different type of illness that is believed to have. We do also have a recipe for uh, uh, a counter poison, you know, sort of a, uh, what would they be called? Um, An antidote. Thank you, Jesse. An antidote for poisons. And the antidote for a scorpion poison is made out of the poison of 1,000 scorpions. So, uh, you know, it's quite clear that they're actually using natural uh, um, materials. In fact, in the description, for example, of Francesco the first uh, alchemical experiments, uh, he seems to be much more involved with materials like corals or pearls, gold. Um, his whole studiolo was uh, decorated. In fact, you know, the studiolo exists today, and in fact, you can probably probably go see it in Palazzo Vecchio, is completely decorated with uh, paintings that show an allegories of the fishing of corals, the fishing of pearls, the, the, the mining of diamonds. So for, you know, I think it depends also on the alchemist itself. Uh, for Francesco, clearly this kind of alchemy was connected, uh, for example, to the occult virtues of stones. But then on the other hand, you have... Uh, mm, uh, supposed collaborators 
of Francesco I. Uh, we know of uh, a couple of people that showed up sometime between 1579 and 1581 asking Francesco permission to collaborate with him on some sort of codex that was going to look at the transmutation of metals, right? But um, unfortunately, we don't know much more than that, and, and, but we do know that the, the Francesco had foundries and that the foundries actually produced, for example, uh, glass, mm-hmm. uh, uh, cast bronze, um, uh, were involved in goldsmithing, and, and so to a certain extent, you can think of uh, um, of this, you know, uh, uh, of alchemy as also including uh, practices that today are considered either artistic or crafts-like. You know. Um, to what extent did they view alchemy as a science versus a magic? How did how do you think they saw alchemy? It was one and the same, Jesse. You couldn't make a distinction between magic and science at this time. Magic is a science because magic is nothing other than uh, a system to understand the world. So that magic is understood as a scientific system of knowledge that can organize and understand the world. There is no distinction between really the two. Um, Of course, there are the skeptics, by all means, you know, uh, that say that alchemy at, at this very same time, that of course speak against alchemy, indicating that probably we have a sense uh, that uh, what alchemy is trying to obtain or the methodologies that it's trying to obtain um, might not be recognized as valid. But on the other hand, if you look, for example, at the decorations on the vault of Uffizi, um, you know, usually we all look at the art on the walls and the, the vaults are so richly decorated that, it's, that they're tough to decode. Yeah, yeah. The decoration on the vaults of the Uffizi actually shows scene after scenes that are inspired by all the alchemical processes. So there is a really the whole uh, what the top floor, right? Yes, if you go on the east corridor uh-huh. um, and you look up, you'll see that there are representation of distillations, uh, representation of uh, instruments that are used during the distillation or used in alchemy as well, you know? So, so what, very- I, I, still, I still can't wrap my head around what all of this means about alchemy because I don't understand why they were so obsessed with it, obviously. Uh, because they are... You know, I mean, they're obsessed with it because on the one hand, it's believed to be a key to understanding the universe, you know. If they can transmute metals, that means that, of course, you can make a gold out of base metal, right? So that means that you have a key to wealth, you have a key to power, because all of a sudden you can transmute simple bronze into into metals. You know, think of like the that um, uh, fairy tale, uh, and I forget if it is a fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin, but the one where straw is spinned into gold, right? So I think there's, there is the, the, uh, the myth of base material that can become gold that is something that has always fascinated humanity, and in the 15th and 16th century, this is elevated to a science. That's what they're trying to achieve. So it's not purely metaphorical because often you'll read critiques of alchemy and they'll state that transmutation is uh, an ideological uh, kind of symbol rather than an actual attempt to create gold from base metal. Yeah, I think that's the interpretation that we give it today. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. Especially like after, uh, uh, you know, post-Jung. You know, in, in post-Jung we tend to see alchemy, of course, and, as an allegorical and spiritual practice. But uh, I don't think that this is exactly what the Medici were doing, you know. In fact, we, you know, even in the, in the exhibitions, they, they speak about um, various uh, uh, ambassadors, you know, like from France or England, uh, leaving um, visits uh, to the Grand Dukes with potions and um, uh, medicines that have been produced in the laboratories. Of- so they were really trying to create gold number one and then uh, and then, um, uh, immortality number two and then maybe in third place would be just uh, general remedies. 
Well, I would say actually, I don't know if in third place we would have the pharmaceutical, you know, remedies. I wonder actually if the pharmaceuticals eventually become the number one, be you know, because in the end the, the pursuit of gold seems to be elusive, right? Right, right. And it's, and it's in the end it's the most esoteric of the practice, and it's probably the most hidden of the practices. So probably the most common artifact that came out of the uh, uh, alchemical laboratories at Uffizi at this time were actually the uh, medical uh, uh, remedies. Along with, of course, you have to think that these same rooms are uh, full of what they call uh, marvelous, you know, of nature or marvels of nature. Because you know, today, of course, we understand, you know, fossils in terms of the evolution of man. But at that time, they're not understood in that manner at all. And so they become proof of something that is, you know, ineffable, of something that man has not yet put its finger on. And so it was not unusual, you know, in that same laboratory to have, you know, mummified monkeys, uh, um, rhinos' horns, um, uh, eggs of various animals, coral, fishes. And, and it's, what it's interesting is that in the documents of the time are called natural, you know, phenomenon. But phenomenon in terms of almost like a, 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 like a circus phenomenon, right? Something that you look, that you marvel at, that it's kind of scary and uncanny at the same time, right? Which makes him think, of course, that the impossible is possible, do you see? Because those elements are considered sort of like weird artifacts. How did they come about? How did this impossible element come about? To what extent was this a push towards knowledge in direct opposition to the uh, monopoly on knowledge that the Catholic Church held? Sure, I think that uh, definitely you can see it in that way. In fact, there's been scholars today that want to think of magic and alchemy, alchemy as it were, as it was practiced by the Medici, for example, and as it's discussed in the exhibition, not as you know, uh, as a precursor of science or the origin of science, if you will, but rather as a system of knowledge that is trying to claim independence from the uh, system of knowledge that is imposed by the Catholic Church. Uh -huh. It becomes a way to classify the world, to understand the world, to analyze the world that is, of course, in competition with the church. Even the fact, I think, that alchemy um, at its basis has this fascination with the transmutation of matter is something that it shares in, with the Catholic religion because at the core of the mass is the transmutation of matter. Really? So, so mass is an alchemical ritual? Yeah, you can conceptualize it in that way. Think about it, you know, on, on, on Easter Sunday today, you know, you have mass. There is the wafer that is nothing other than flour and water, right? That is blessed on the altar. But the moment that it's blessed on the altar, so there is this, you know, physical ritual that is executed by a priest, that material miraculously transforms itself into the actual body of Christ, right? So it's no longer bread. You know, this is a very fundamental notion that distinguishes, for example, even in the 16th century when we have the beginning of uh, the Protestant uh, Reformation, Protestantism from Catholicism. For Catholics, and it's illustrated in a number of frescoes, I think even of the Vatican uh, frescoes of the disputation over the Holy Sacrament, or the miracle of the Mass of Bolsena, it's extremely important to insist on the idea that during the Mass, the bread is transformed into the body of Christ. You are eating the body of Christ. That's an alchemical transformation. But there we, there we go again with human sacrifice. And that's my uh, main concern right now after having done this documentary on the uh, Tower of Athenor at the Torrigiani Gardens, is that uh, it seems like human sacrifice is either at the uh, center or definitely one of the most important aspects of 
alchemy and then also obviously of Catholicism as well. And it, since well, you're course. stating that the Catholic Mass is essentially an alchemical ritual and, and it sounds like it is, well, then, well, I, then not, what, how is human sacrifice related to all this? Yeah, I'm not stating in the end that, you know, um, that the Mass is an alchemical ritual, but it has in common with alchemy the same principle, transformation. Right. Do you see that? Right, but that does, render, that does render it essentially the same thing. Well, you know, yeah, one could argue yeah. that, you know. Um, uh, uh, the other thing, of course, that, uh, you know, part of the Catholic idea is that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, right? You no longer need to do human sacrifices, yeah. you know, because Christ is offered himself. So what do we sacrifice instead? That Easter is the lamb, which is, of course, a symbol for Christ, right? So I think when, when alchemy talks about this sacrifice is though not visualized as something that is actually, uh, you know, concrete, but it is in the same level that the Catholic Church does, right? We no longer sacrifice human beings, but we keep uh, reenacting a metaphor of sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the sacrifice of Christ. So. Uh, one could say, you know, that the fact that we're eating the body of Christ would make us cannibals, right? Right, yeah. But at the, but at the same time, it's a meta, you know, it can be sublimated, it can become an allegory, it is a metaphor, because concretely, we're only eating bread. And it's, it one, and it's one human sacrifice to last for eternity for all people. Exactly. So, and, you know, and in fact, in actual de facto, you're only eating bread. You, it is only if you participate, you know, in the belief that this matter has been transformed, that you can believe that you are then ingesting truly the essence of the body of Christ. But you see that. Why do human beings need this human sacrifice and to be cannibals? I, I really don't understand that. You know what I mean? Well, that's a question I can't answer, Jesse. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Jeez, you know, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Interesting, I'm sure, you know, if you have conversations, for example, with people of other faiths, including the Islamic faith, yeah. you know, uh, people of the Islamic faith are, uh, have often um, commented to me, so this is only anecdotal, I don't know that this is something that is shared commonly, but some of friends that I've known have certainly commented to me that uh, 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 religious, Christian religious imagery strikes them as extremely pagan in its insistence on physical sacrifice, on blood and gore, you know, but yeah, I've heard uh, that too. They're right. Yeah, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that, you know, for example, a religion like Islam doesn't have its idea of human sacrifice. Does you know? it? In, in what form does that take? I would argue the fact that you have the uh, uh, young men who immolate themselves, who sacrifice Right, right, them. yes. Martyrdom, yes, yes. It's equal, it's equal to martyrdom, you right. know, so... It is at that point then, you know, uh, veering off the path of the exhibition. It's at that point, I think, that you have to discuss this material in terms of perhaps of the Jungian archetypes, you know, because I really don't have any other uh, way of thinking about it. Yeah, I do. I do want to keep on the topic of the exhibition, but um, the topic of human sacrifice has really been on my mind since I uh did this documentary on the Tower of Athenor. Yeah, and so, so, you know, I, I, I really do want to understand uh, what was going on in that. You've heard of Bohemian Grove, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they have this, uh, they have this ritual at the Bohemian Grove with all the elite of the United States and Europe or whatever, and they sacrifice supposedly a mock uh, child sacrifice to an owl, which is Moloch, right? This, I, I, you have, if you haven't seen the documentary over here, but um, basically in Torrigiani Gardens, which is in the center of Florence, they have, it's a beautiful garden, and they have um, a path of enlightenment, which is just amazing. And they have, yeah. a, a, they have a, a tower of Athenor. You've probably seen or, or read about the tower, I'm sure. Um, but it's, a, it's the Bacani Tower in the Torrigiani Gardens. And um, basically it's multi-leveled, and it has a library and uh, an observatory for an astronomical observatory but in its base it has an athenor an oven uh, mm -hmm. which is connected by an underground tunnel to a crypt 
and yeah. there, where there are no bodies uh, buried, by the way. So um, uh -huh. basically what it looks like is that um, there were some sort of uh, human body offerings, okay? Uh, whether they were, uh, how they were obtained or whether they were alive when they were first offered is a subject to um, art a question, but, okay. but there was burning of bodies there, you know. I realize, I think that uh, there are a number of ceremonies throughout the world where effigies, right, of, uh, 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 in the shape of a human are sacrificed to, or burned to uh, pass, for example, the, uh, uh, when we go from winter to spring or one year to another. So, I mean, this type of, you know, I, I don't think that actually that there, there would be a, a cremation of an actual human being, right? I think that a lot of these things are absolutely metaphorical. And it's, it's something that it's found worldwide, this idea also of um, burning effigies uh, that are in a human shape. Okay, but I mean, there's a hair line between burning an effigy and actually burning a person. I mean, it would harken back to no, some sort of, of historical I practice, I would think. Yeah, I don't know that they're actually burning a person. That's what I mean. Okay, right. <laughs> well, yeah, there's obviously there's the Wicker Man uh, movie that is obviously about the Celts, when, and I <laughs> fully believe that they did that. But, yeah, of course, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of what we did today, and it's a question of what happened in the uh, uh, pre-Christian period or early Christian period, you know? Human sacrifice is well recorded throughout uh, uh, cultures, you know? But it's a question of, you know, I think that's what in the end uh, Christian religion is be able, is, it has been able to do, is that it's made it a metaphor. You don't no longer need to actually burn somebody. You don't actually Yeah, and, and that's so powerful, and it really does seem, in my mind, to validate Christianity, you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. of course. Okay, but, so, so um, yeah. but getting back to the exhibition, um, so, so the exhibition starts out as you walk in on the left, um, mm -hmm. you see uh, a series of images of alchemists in their laboratories. That's right. That's right. And these would be images that are trying to recreate for you what the laboratories must have looked like, particularly the laboratory that were in the Uffizi um, and that were oversaw uh, or, you know, uh, led by Francesco I. You know, and at the death of Francesco, his uh, um, uh, uh, the Medici who uh, came to power, I think, was Ferdinand II, and he actually closed most of the laboratories that uh, Francesco had um, uh, opened, suggesting that Ferdinand was not as interested in alchemy as Francesco was, and only kept up the part that was much more, quote-unquote, scientific, so much more involved with the practice of pharmaceutical preparations. Does that, is that like the beginning of the Enlightenment, do you think? You know, the beginning of, you know, in a way that the enlightenment comes about very slowly. By the time that we get to the 1700s, what happens is that they recognize, of course, that the uh, importance of chemical uh, transformations and experiments and chuck any kind of magical or uh, esoteric ideas about transformations of metals or transformations of the soul. And all of a sudden, you know, the, these preparations go in completely different directions. Part of it is because as they are amassing throughout the 15th and 16th century uh, and eventually the 17th century, as the cabinet of curiosities become, as you've seen in the exhibitions where there are illustrations of this cabinet of curiosities, become almost veritable museums, right? Mini museums in which you have, you start to see collected in it all these different objects, you know, vegetable, animal, mineral, and all of a sudden as they start classifying this material, I think they start noticing uh, similarities and differences that were not available for classification before. They come to recognize an order to things that of course has nothing to do with the magical and everything to do instead with what eventually will become science. So yes, in the Enlightenment of course, we have a complete, uh, um, a complete change in the approach to this material. We're not 
longer interested in coral because coral is somehow miraculous. But now we're interested in coral because in the cabinet of curiosities, we have five, six, ten, hundred examples of corals. And how come they have different colors? How come they have different shapes? What is this due to? Where is the origin coming from? Right? So you start thinking in a completely different way. So the, the rational uh, takes precedence over the irrational. Yes. But to yeah. what extent is the Enlightenment a religion of numbers? Did we lose something when we switched over from uh, what we perceive to be irrational and therefore illegitimate into uh, the rationality that took control of, the, uh, of humanity for you know, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries? And now we're just seem, it seems that we're just now beginning to, it's beginning to sort of start melting and we're starting to actually be able to appreciate that maybe there's a balance in between rationality and irrationality. Well, I'm, I'm going to answer as an historian first, yeah. which is that in the end, you know, the in order to move forwards in the Enlightenment, they had to discredit that irrational uh, aspect, you know, that irrational approach to uh, reality, because they had to, of course, convince people that, you know what, if you get a smallpox vaccine, you are not going to get smallpox. And, you know, that it, God had nothing to do with being, with getting the smallpox or being healed by the smallpox, right? That there was a medicine that was man-made, that was created by a doctor that understood the principles of vaccinations. And I think, you know, so it was necessary to eliminate that irrational because you had to change uh, the uh, uh, way in which uh, people saw the world, people who were illiterate. And you have to remember, pretty much until the 19th century, you know, the majority of the populations are absolutely illiterate and have no uh, education whatsoever, right? Yeah. There is no universal education. So I think now we are able, for example, to recognize that when the Enlightenment, you know, steered us towards the science, they had, of course, they purged the past of all these beliefs as well. You know, so the Renaissance, for example, has always been presented as an irrational endeavor. It's really in the past maybe, you know, 20 years that historians are starting to look at magic in a, his, you know, in a serious way. Right. Some quirky, crazy things that, you know, was kind of strange and people didn't really buy. Right. Are you one of the few who's doing that or do you know others who are doing that? Because you do seem to be fairly unique in your knowledge of magic, but from a, a scholarly perspective. No, 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 no. There are quite a few, uh, Jesse, in the scholarly world today that are interested in this idea. I'm going to refer you to an association, a scholarly association called uh, Societas Magica, S-O-C-I-E-T-A-S. And Magica, M A G I C A. And I think it is societasmagica.org. And you can probably subscribe to their newsletter. It is led by a number of scholars who are tenured professors. And you might be able to even download some of the articles that are published on it. They'll give you a sense of the kind of research that people have been doing recently on the subject. Moving on uh, through the exhibition, we find some paintings of uh, beakers, as we were discussing, or I'm not sure what the technical yes. term was for the for the beakers, but um, and no, then, no, that's correct. Yes. Um, also, there is a really beautiful small painting of a nude uh, with alchemical instruments, kind of surrounding her uh, against a black background. That's right. So the, in the exhibition, first they show you a number of images of the alchemists, right? And you'll see that there is two types of uh, images. There is the image in which the alchemist is also is sort of presented, like in uh, the David Tenier image, um, is presented as an elderly, elderly man who is surrounded by all sorts of glass beakers and objects and books. And there's sort of like a craziness and uh, melancholic atmosphere, right? And then there are images in which you have almost scientific representation 
of what happens in the alchemical laboratories. Now, the image that you're referring to is actually a representation of luck, a representation of fortune executed in the workshop of Jacopo Ligozzi. And uh, it shows a young woman shown nude. She is uh, standing uh, with one foot on a sphere. And usually that's those kind of figures indicate chance, right? And one of her feet also has red wings around it. We see a number of of uh, books on our uh, left side, would be the right side of the figure. On her right side, she also holds these um, large glass implements with series of gold coins that are falling inside the vase and outside of the vase come instead butterflies. So this idea, of course, of the transformation of matter, right? And so in this case, uh, the uh, um, probably what Francesco the first is here, you know, interested in is the idea of transformation but also that at this point the idea of transformation seems to be connected as well to chance to luck you know uh, they haven't quite yet figured out how it can be made into a systematic scientific process also in the exhibition there are um several references to ancient egypt and it seems like they were just yes. beginning to discover uh you know mummies and attempting to understand uh, hieroglyphs. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, actually the interest in Egypt, it goes back to the 15th century, particularly for the Medici, who in the 15th century, uh, 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 you know, the, um, come into possession of a body of uh, literature that is today known as the Corpus Hermeticum, right? And the Corpus Hermeticum is probably of Alexandrine origin, so, you know, Alexandria of Egypt, and it's a collection probably of the kind of esoteric rituals that were executed in the context of uh, temples in Egypt at this time, some of them actually seem to also be connected to medical knowledge, uh, Egyptian medical knowledge. So the, the, the Corpus Hermeticum was also believed to obviously uh, uh, hold within it the secrets of the universe, the secrets of life. So it comes to be seen eventually as, uh, as a truth, as a something that the uh, um, ancients have passed down, of course, uh, to uh, uh, to men in the 15th and 16th century. And this then eventually increases um, throughout the 16th century. We have the first mummies. And then by the time, of course, that you get to Napoleon, you have, of course, trips to Egypt themselves, right? And then the conquest of Egypt and the discoveries of the uh, um, pyramids. And then um, in the center of the exhibition, they had uh, a special sort of chamber dedicated to uh, curiosities. So it was That's a cabinet right. of curiosities and it yes. had a narwhal horn, which is like a unicorn's horn yes. from a fish. That's right. And they had um, a um, sort of dried alligator hanging from the ceiling, which was yes. really cool. Yeah. And in fact, it's very similar. If you look, and it was in the exhibition as well, there was a, an illustration of this cabinet of curiosities that we've been speaking of that is very renowned in scholarly uh, circles as well. Yeah. And it is the, um, the laboratory of natural history of Ferrante Imperato, a Neapolitan. And in the illustration of this Wunderkammer, of this cabinet of curiosities, there is a dried or stuffed alligator hanging from the ceiling, as well as the horns of the uh, um, uh, narwhal, as well as the uh, rostrum of a... Um, uh, oh gosh, what is it called in English? The, the, the pesce sega, the sawfish? Oh, mean? right. Uh, I, it probably is a sawfish, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, you have all the blowfish as well. Oh, right, right. Skeletons of mummies. You, so, know what else, you know what else they had? They had one of those, one of those goat hairballs that you were talking about when we last spoke. You saw that. Yeah, right? they had one of those, yeah. Right? Yeah, and, and Bezoar is interesting, of Bezoar. course. 
because they believed that it protected against uh, poisons, right? So it was a powerful pal talisman to have in, in your possession. And the one that they had in exhibition was rather large. Yeah, it really um, was, yeah. Yeah, it's really big, but you know, they, they come almost like in pearl size. And so they could be worn as uh, rings or gems in, uh, as part of your jewelry so that you could have it directly on your person to protect you from poison. What did you gather from the book? Are there things that we haven't mentioned that uh, stood out in the book? No, I think that the, you know what is really fascinating is that in the exhibition is that the uh, uh, um, the curators have really tried to show that even as much as uh, uh, you know alchemy today might be considered esoteric, it was not considered esoteric at this time, in the sense that it was considered a science, in the sense that it was also used as a diplomatic gift. I think that's the one that stood out most to me, you know, that the, uh, for example, the uh, pharmaceutical products of the alchemical laboratories were also used as uh, gifts to the nobles or ambassadors of all of Europe. And this is rather powerful if you think about it, right? Um, so uh, it becomes to a certain extent then not just a, a practice, but an object that can be used for political means. And I think that's an aspect that has not been carefully perhaps explored Lord, which is the political um, uh, uh, side of magic, the political aspect of magic. And I think that's something that scholars are just barely starting to look at. And I think this is what's really emerge from the exhibition. They don't directly address it. But as you look at the stories that they're putting together, you realize that it's there. What were they giving to each other? Um, the, well, on the one hand, you know, uh, the objects themselves, like the marvelous objects, for them marvelous, that we were just discussing of, like the bezoar, right? As well as actually the uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, remedies that they created. Like, for example, um, you must have seen at certain point that there was a little casket of sealed earth or sealed, uh, they look like pills, flat pills. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. So those contain basically it's clay, right? That if you've noticed, it's very interesting. It's sealed because it actually bears the impression of the Medici seal on it. Where this type of uh, remedy apparently consisted of magnesium, iron, copper, alum, uh, arsenicum, uh, uh, some salts. And these, of course, were believed to have powerful, uh, they were believed to be powerful healing remedies. So you're seeing sort of like the equivalent, I guess, of a box of aspirins, right? Yeah, yeah. But these are produced only by, you know, in the BRD seal of the Medici itself. So it's not just medicine itself, it becomes representative of the power of the Medici. Right, it's particularly since their last name, Medici means doctors, right? So the ability to heal. So when this is sent as a gift, as a diplomatic gift, uh, of course they are sending a diplomatic gift that it's implying the knowledge and power of the Medici family and the Medici, you know, um, uh, Grand Dukes. And their innovation in science. Absolutely, absolutely. This is obviously, you know, you have to remember these kind of laboratories exist only uh, at, in, in, associated with the courts of noblemen, with the courts of dukes or kings or queens. So people who have access to it are obviously only the elite classes. Yeah, and th this, was, this was the era when pineapples were worth the equivalent of like $5,000, right? <laughs> No, I mean, these are, uh, and some remedies probably work better than others, right? Yeah. Because uh, probably some uh, of these concoctions must have had some scientific property that ended up being uh, useful 
for specific uh, uh, treatment. Like at certain point, I think in the recipes, um, we have some sort of tonic that they created. And in this tonic, they um, played around with the dosage of water, wine, honey, and a variety of syrups. And according to the dosage of the various elements, this tonic would be used for either fevers or for blood poisonings or dysentery. And you can imagine that at certain point, you know, uh, uh, there must have been some illness for which this tonic was taken, and it actually worked. It actually helped you, right? And if, or it helped one specific individual. And of course, then it became important to use it systematically, and it would become, you know, there would be proof that it actually worked. Uh, it, it's very clear also that at certain point, if they wanted to use it for dysentery, then they would add uh, a, a certain ingredients. If they wanted to use it on the skin, they would add a certain oil. So it becomes a sort of, uh, uh, do you remember, you know, and I'm sure you've seen it or you've heard about the quack doctors, you know, the, 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 that in the 19th century sold oils and elixirs, you know. In, yes, and the snake oil salesman. Exactly, snake oil salesman. Well, I think that that's, you know, the origin of that idea is probably found in this kind of balsam, in this kind of concoctions that they came up with. I hadn't thought about that, but so you're basically saying that um, one of the most important aspects of alchemy is its pharmaceutical benefit. Yeah, I think like, or it's, you know, uh, the attempt of coming up with also pharmaceutical remedies, you know? Right, That's aside from transmutation of gold and exactly. the philosopher's stone. What about the philosopher's stone? Can you tell us about that? Was there anything in the book about or in the exhibition about the philosopher's stone? Not at all, No. No. No, it does not discusses it at all. In fact, it's much more focused on this idea of the pharmaceutical remedies, and from it, it's very clear as well that these, the fact that these pharmaceutical remedies are sent off as a diplomatic gift, we can associate therefore alchemy with the political, of course, uh, influence that the Medici are trying to extend over Europe. Uh, so, did alchemy begin in in Florence? No, I don't think that alchemy, you know, um, you know, historically uh, can be pinpointed as having begun in Florence or Venice. In fact, I think there are, as I'm thinking about it, uh, there are very important alchemical centers in Germany as well. I'm not sure that I know if there is a conception as to where specifically um, alchemy would have begun. Wouldn't it have been influenced by the Neoplatonists? Absolutely, but I, I have a sense that it must, you know, that certain practices or certain ideas must be older than that, you know? So uh, it would have its roots, obviously, in ancient Egypt, you would think. Well, you know, the, the roots in ancient Egypt, of course, but I don't understand, I don't think, sorry, I don't think that they called it alchemy. You know? Right, it's, right, oh yeah, yeah. It's the way Westerners use certain Egyptian uh, uh, hermetic knowledge that then, you know, makes it in, uh, relevant to alchemy. We have a clue right there, and alchemy is obviously a, uh, an Arabic word, so they're learning it somehow from the Middle East. Yeah. The Europeans you know, so are. Why, that's why I'm sort of actually uh, <coughs> hesitating, you know. I mean, uh, I, certainly we can think of uh, the idea of transformation of matter as something that is found in Egyptian uh, uh, knowledge or an Egyptian approach to reality. Certainly found as well in certain aspect of Greek uh, uh, philosophy. You know, think of the four elements and the way in which they influenced, the, for example, the personality of a human being. But probably the... Um, the word alchemy, as you correctly say, suggested that as a systematic body of knowledge is probably developed in uh, Arabic, uh, Islamic context. Um, 
whether you know it pursued the philosopher's stone i i don't know i don't know enough about that aspect to be able to answer the question but can you tell us about the philosopher's stone well you know the philosopher's stones in alchemy is believed basically to be a legendary substance that is able to turn the base metal into gold so when we're talking about for example this transformation of the of the metals the there is a principle that they're looking for that is gonna happen or that it's gonna make it happen and that's what they're trying to discover so it could be understood as being sometimes it gets called as a tincture sometimes it gets called the powder so in and of itself it's not a stone do you know what i mean you know even if it's called a philosopher's stone uh, i think uh, it was not conceptualized or seen literally as a stone but rather as a, a principle or element that was going to help him transform the base metal into gold. And then from an allegorical point of view, was going to, of course, transform a human being, uh, curing from any illnesses, prolong life, help him spiritual uh, enlightenment. So what is the difference then between the elixir of life and the philosopher's stone? The, uh, I think the elixir of life is something that is much more um, um, a, a pharmaceutical remedy, whereas instead the philosopher's stone is that element that is actually going to also transform base metals into gold. So it's not just about the body, it's also about matter uh, around the human, uh, human beings. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. To download the Great Work Radio program files, just search for the name Jesse War in the iTunes Store. Mm-hmm.